Uh, Over the past group of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Joel. And when you look through the book of Joel, there's a variety of things that probably stand out to you. One of the things I imagine that stands out is the repeated reference to the day of the Lord. And we're going to see that again in today's passage. But when you look at the book in its totality, you can see the righteousness of God displayed. You can see the opportunity for repentance that people are offered. And we've had the experience of of being able to look at that over the past couple weeks in particular. And we also see restoration. And we're getting to that restoration uh, section. We're, We're really in that section. And we're looking at how the Lord defends His people and restores His people. And in the midst of... um. All the different things taking place in this, in this book and in this particular chapter that we're in today, and by the way, we're in chapter 3 of Joel, in this particular section of chapter 3, it shows us an example of war, it shows us an example of adversity, and it also gives us, in the midst of this example, a moment where we could see where, that, that victory over adversity was guaranteed. This is a moment when victory over adversity is guaranteed. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Joel chapter 3. We're in the middle section of Joel chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 down to verse 16. So not a very long portion of Scripture, but Joel chapter 3, starting with verse 9. This is what it says here in this portion of God's Word. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at Your Word together this morning. And we pray that as we look at this portion of Your Word, that You'd speak to our minds and that You'd speak to our hearts and that You'd help us as we seek to be ultimately men and women who live our lives as as those who whom you've called unto yourself. We want to be men and women after your own heart. We want to be people who honor you in all respects. And we also want to have confidence in you, Lord, in the midst of whatever uh, season of trial or difficulty or challenge we may go through. And Lord, as we look at this portion of your word today, we could see a moment where adversity was certainly something that your people were experiencing, but we could also see that victory over this adversity was guaranteed in you. So, Lord, we pray that we would see this both in its historical context and also its prophetic context, but also in its applicational context as you reveal things about your heart to us and help us to understand more about what it's like to walk with you in the midst of any kind of season of life that we may face. 
So we commit this time to you now, Lord, and we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at your word together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Several times in my life, and this has happened, I, I don't know, it seems to happen with some regularity, but there's, there's definitely some defining moments that have happened several times in my life that I would consider consequential spiritual battles. I was trying to think of what's the best way to define this thing, and, and I, I, that's the best term I could come up with or the best phrase I could come up with, consequential spiritual battles, meaning moments where, from my perspective, the fate of a church or the fate of a ministry was on the line and the spiritual well-being of, of a large group of people was going to be impacted if something wasn't done to correct a problem or to chart a new course. And in each of those circumstances, as I've, as I've experienced that in my life and in my years of pastoral leadership, I've noticed a pattern. There's an interesting pattern. You'll usually find, first of all, people that are discouraged. And by the way, have we not seen that as we go throughout the book of, of Joel in looking at the people of Judah? You see a group of people that were discouraged. But there's other things that you also see in moments like that where there's some you know, consequential spiritual battles. You see people that are discouraged. You see a general sense of disorder. In some instance, uh, you also find examples of people that are actively working against a ministry or a church succeeding. Uh, sometimes they'll spread falsehood or negativity about leadership. Sometimes they'll cover up their own misdoings. Sometimes they'll steal resources. Sometimes they'll steal money. So I've seen that in my 21 years of pastoral leadership, different things like that taking place in certain contexts. But in each of those consequential spiritual battles, that I've either observed take place or had the opportunity to interject myself into the midst of as the Lord led, I've also been completely convinced that the Lord was going to make all the details work out and secure a decisive victory. And as I think about those moments, and those are kind of like the key moments of how I define my adult life, you know, thinking about these things because they tended to involve... Um, just kind of some major decisions on the part of our family, major decisions in regard to ministry. And I look at those things, and I remember in each of those moments being completely convinced in my heart that the Lord's will would prevail and that He would be victorious. And that's exactly what happened in each of those contexts. And so when I look at a portion of Scripture like we're looking at today, Obviously, I look at it from the historical context of how these things were impacting the people of Judah, and I look at it from the prophetic context of the things that the Lord's going to bring about. We're going to focus on both of those things today, but I was thinking about this this week when I was looking at this spiritual battle and how it plays out here, and it felt very personal. It felt like something that, I, that felt familiar to me because it's not something that the Lord just does historically. This, is an, uh, this Scripture gives us a reflection of the Lord's heart. It gives us a reflection of the Lord's character. And in our era right now, I've watched the Lord do these sorts of things where He comes to the aid of His people, where He assists those who are seeking to accomplish His will, and He backs them up and He fights for them. I've seen the Lord secure victory over adversity in a variety of ways. Now, when you look at this portion of Scripture, I just want to pose a couple questions before we look at the text again here. And the first question is this, what's the primary victory that the Lord shows us He will secure in this passage? 
So what's the primary victory? Just be thinking about that for just a moment here. And then secondarily, what does the Lord reveal to us in this Scripture about moments like this when He's securing these victories? What is He showing us? What's the pattern here? Because this pattern plays out, not just in this one moment. It's a pattern that plays out time and time again. And one of the things that we see in the pattern is this. First of all, and this might sound weird, but I'm going to show you what I mean by this. The weak stay weak because they're fooling themselves. Now, what do I mean by that? That seems like a weird statement, doesn't it? You know, when, when I'm trying to outline our message for this week, you know, and looking at the opening verses that we just read, you know, this is one of the things that I see here in this portion of Scripture, that the weak stay weak because they're fooling themselves. Well, let me reread these verses, and then I'll explain why I'm saying that. It says in verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. And then the, there's this comment here, it says, Let the weak say... I am a warrior. Now, in the portion of Scripture that we're reading here today, you see a war taking place. And to just give you some uh, prophetic context here about what's going on, the war that's described here is referred to by students of the Bible typically as the Battle of Armageddon. Have you heard that term before? The Battle of Armageddon. It's referenced, obviously, elsewhere in Scripture. But that's what's being spoken of here. And this is a battle that's described elsewhere in Scripture as a time when the armies of the world unite, and they align with this world leader that Scripture refers to as the Antichrist, and they engage in battle against Christ and His people. So you see Joel talking about this here, but this battle is referenced not just here in the book of Joel. It's also referenced in places like the book of Revelation. It's also referenced, by the way, in the book of Psalms. Let me show you a couple of those references. First off, uh, in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Then in the book of Revelation chapter 16, it says this, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this is the same thing that Joel is speaking about here in this portion of Scripture, but we again, we see it referenced prophetically in the book of Psalms. We also see it referenced prophetically in the book of Revelation. And at the time that's being described in these portions of Scripture, you have the nations coming together, and they choose to rise up. And we're told here that their mighty men are going to be stirred up to throw off any bonds of allegiance or obligation to the Lord. And we're even told here that their resources and even their farming tools, so tools that would typically be used for farming, are going to be transformed into weapons of war, and they're going to rush into battle convinced of victory, but they're going to fail. That's what the Scripture tells us. They're basically going to rush into battle here, convinced of victory, and they're going to fail. And we're also shown here that even the weak are going to get scooped up or wrapped up in this hysteria with the, and with the encouragement of others as this is all going on, they're going to start fooling themselves into thinking that they're strong. You know, it's interesting because the scripture here says, uh, and let the weak say what? I am a warrior. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. So they're going to be convinced 
that they're strong when they're actually weak. And by the way, this is something that frequently happens during seasons of war when nations become so desperate that they're willing to take anyone into the army or into their military service. Uh, This happened here in the United States during the Civil War. When you get into the later years of the Civil War, people essentially were sending their children, their young teenagers, so picture this, uh, those of you that that have uh, children or grandchildren, you know, picture sending off someone, uh, you know, in their young teen years off to battle because you know, there's just such a need for manpower. By the way, this happened during World War II as well. I'm going to show you a couple pictures in just a second here. But in World War II, the German army became so decimated and so desperate that they essentially started taking children to be their soldiers. Let me show you a couple pictures from that time. Look at this. Look at these guys. I mean, how old do you think they are? And at the end of the war, what's happening? You have, even in a modern context, it's like, let the weak say, I am a warrior. I'm a warrior. It's like, no, you're not. You're a child. You're a child. I was going to show another picture, and I chose not to show it because it bothered me too much, but it was another picture from the battle lines during World War II of a young German soldier. He probably, to me, he looked like he was probably about 13 years old, something like that, weeping and crying his eyes out, trying to hide behind a bunker. And just weeping and crying. And it's like, that child is not emotionally prepared for something like that. They're not ready for something like that. But you look when there's just such desperation. You know, pinning a medal on a child here. Having this this child, this whole group of children, if you look at their faces. You know, it's like, let the weak say, I'm a warrior. And here, when you look at this portion of Scripture, and it's describing what's going to happen during this time where you have the nations of the world rising up against the Lord. It's the same thing. It's the same type of thing that's happened in our own era, and it's going to happen again. And it's a shame when it happens, because usually it's the sign of a lost cause. And when you look at this book of Joel, those are some of the images that come to my mind. When you look at chapter 3 here in particular, because in the rush to battle, you have even those who are not ready for war... You're going to have them convince themselves that they are, and the weak are going to say that they're strong because they're going to fool themselves into believing that, even though it's not the case. Now, let me say this from a personal standpoint that I want us to kind of wrestle with a tiny bit here. I don't know about you, but when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I say to myself, I don't want to be weak, and I don't want to fool myself. Those are two things that I do not want to be the case. I do not want to be weak. And I don't want to fool myself. And those are two things that are very much taking place in this portion of Scripture. And by the way, weakness is embraced by those who do not understand where true strength comes from. If we do not understand where true strength comes from, we are essentially embracing weakness. Our strength comes from embracing Jesus Christ, not fighting against Him. And this portion of Scripture shows us armies aligned to fight against Him. And so that's what I mean when I say the weak stay weak because they're fooling themselves. Strength doesn't come from fighting against the Lord. Our strength comes when we embrace the Lord and we welcome Him to work within us. And He makes us strong not in our own natural strength, but He makes us strong with the strength that He graciously supplies to us. 
So those who submit their lives to Christ, they are graced with His strength and they are graced with His wisdom. While those who reject Him, they persist in their weakness and they persist in their folly. And that's how this is opening up here is it's giving us this war imagery. Now there's something else that this portion of Scripture demonstrates that I want to point out to us and that's this. The proud rush to their destruction. Look at what it says in verses 11 and 12. It tells us, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So one of the scariest things as a dad, at least in my mind, is... um, the, the season of life that I'm at right now. <laughs> it scares me in a new way. You know, isn't that great, those of you that are at a season right before where I'm at? And I'm just giving you a picture of what you have to look forward to, right? You just walk around scared the whole time. Not literally, but I have to tell you, one thing that does kind of scare me and probably should scare me a little bit is the idea of when you send your children off to drive, you know, you, you teach them to drive, you send them off to drive, and you're like, okay, I don't think I'm ever going to fully get used to that, Right? That's a very different feeling. And um, you find yourself analyzing every aspect of driving like, like it's new because you want to be able to convey this is what you want to watch out for. This is, uh, you know, safety in driving. You want to do this. You know, Grams, I'm seeing you guys in the, back, in the back there. And just think, like in five minutes, Wesley is going to be driving, right? How do you feel about that? It doesn't feel that way right now. I'm telling you, five, you got five minutes left and he's going to be driving. That's how it will feel when the day comes, and he's going to take that Tesla, and he's going to drive it. Um, but I'm telling you, like that. so I find myself analyzing all sorts of things. Now, over the past two days, I had to take a, a long drive. On Friday, I drove to Pittsburgh, and I, I uh, did some training Friday night at a church near Pittsburgh. And then yesterday in the morning, I did some training with a group of other churches in Pittsburgh, and then got on the turnpike and drove all the way back. So I left uh, here on Friday and got, I got to Pittsburgh around 5 o'clock on Friday night. And then I was back here 8 o'clock on Saturday night. So that's a lot of driving in a short period of time. And you know what you notice when you're driving on the turnpike going west and then coming back east? First of all, it's heavily policed, so don't speed. And I did see a car driving extremely fast that a short while later I saw on the side of the road pulled over. And I was like, I'm glad they got that one. That one was going way too fast. But one of the things that I have seen frequently when I'm on long drives like that is when you get behind a truck, and inevitably there'll be somebody that weaves back and forth. And you ever see people make this mistake and try and pass a large 18-wheeler on the right? And they don't realize that they're rushing and they're going super fast, and they're about to swerve and pass that truck on the right, but they can't see what's over there. And you see what's over there, and what's over there is either a very slow or stopped vehicle that they can't see until they get right up on it because they're weaving back and forth, and effectively, and there's all sorts of compilations. I remember, again, from the parental rule, showing my children videos of these things saying, do not pass a truck on the right. Because there could be something stopped over there. People inevitably get in bad accidents doing things like that. They're effectively rushing to their own demise. They're rushing to their own destruction, completely blinded to the fact that there's something there that's going to cause a wreck. 
And I bring that up because that's exactly what you see in a war context taking place in these verses. You have people proud to rush to their own destruction. So there's going to come a time when the nations of the world are going to do that very thing. They're going to rush right to their destruction. They're going to swell with pride. And you know what happens when you swell with pride? You become blind to the things that you would see if you exercised humility. But if you, if you swell with pride, you put blinders on your eyes and you rush right into destruction because you ignore the fact that it's even a possibility. And the Scripture reveals to us here that the nations are going to set themselves against the Lord. They're going to hurry to do battle with the Lord. And then they're going to discover that they rushed right into their own judgment. That's the picture of the battle that's displayed here. But again, that's what pride does, right? That's what happens when, when we walk in pride or when we live in pride. Pride has a blinding effect on us. Not just on a, a warring nation, but on us as individuals. Pride has a blinding effect. Scripture tells us, and this is fascinating because this comes up multiple times in Scripture, but Scripture tells us multiple times that the Lord opposes the proud. So He directly opposes, sets Himself against the proud, but shows His grace, His unmerited favor to the humble. So He opposes the proud, and He helps the humble. He opposes the proud, but He blesses the humble. And yet a large percentage of humanity, what do we choose anyway? We choose pride, and we wear it like it's a badge of honor. And even though we may not think of ourselves as fighting against the Lord in those moments, that's exactly what we're doing. Anytime we embrace our own um, just like selfish pride and set ourselves against the work that God wants to do and set ourselves against the direct teaching of His Word, we put blinders on and we rush right to our own destruction. But if we desire to experience the blessings of God's grace, and I would suspect that that's the desire of each of us, that we desire to experience the blessings of God's grace, there has to come a time in our life then where we put the pride aside, where we leave it behind and we experience a sense of humility. In the sense that we have to humbly admit our need to be rescued, we need to humbly admit our need for a Savior. We need to humbly admit that we need Jesus Christ to save and rescue us. He offers to rescue us. He offers to bless us. Scripture even reveals to us that He offers to allow us to reign with Him in eternity, but we'll never experience that if our hearts remain bent on resisting Him. And that's what pride is. It's just deciding and kind of digging in to the, to the fact that we're going to resist the Lord, we're going to resist His will, we're going to... We're going to uh, just go against the clear teaching of His Word, and we're going to do whatever we feel like doing in any given moment. The proud rush to their own destruction. We see that here in this passage. But then the Scripture continues to go on. And by the way, even before I read this next section here, do you see not only a military and a prophetic application to this portion of Scripture, but can't you see how in a personal way this applies to us as well? I mean, we're seeing humanity's proclivities on a big scale here displayed, but it's so true in our own lives and in our own personalities. When we look at these things, any one of us is capable of going in this direction. But then the Scripture shows us in verses 13 to 15 that the Lord cuts down the forces of evil. Look at verse 13. It says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. 
The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Do you ever find yourself... um, you know how if you're using Facebook, and by the way, Facebook could be like a, a major time drain, right? So it's kind of nice to put it in a compartment, but I, I check Facebook a few times a day. And do you ever notice that if you're watching a video on Facebook, then it suggests the next video to you? And then you watch that and it's like, oh, and here's another one. And by the way, it's a trap, right? Because what ends up happening, it's like, it's like, how did I even get on this video when I, I clicked on like you know, just something my friend had posted. Now, what am I watching? And I got to tell you, that happened to me recently. And I found myself watching video of trees being cut by power lines. And I'm like, why am I watching video of trees being cut by a power, near a power line? And I'm fascinated by it. But then I have to say, it was a pretty cool video. Because I don't know if any of you saw this, but uh, I don't know how, how widely spread this was. This was very recently I saw this. A helicopter. Well, all right, so even picture the way the trees are along the street here. You see, you see the power lines, and then there's all sorts of trees that grow right next to them. And you think to yourself, all right, in a bad storm, what's going to happen? Those branches are going to knock those power lines down. And so what do you have the power company typically doing? They try and trim those things. But could you imagine the task of having to trim all those trees along those power lines? That is... Sometimes an insurmountable task. So I saw a video recently where, and I, I didn't even know a device like this existed, where you had a helicopter with a cord hanging from it and then this large, chain, large chainsaw-like device with multiple wheels of chain and, and, and uh, you know, just blade on it was being guided along the tree line. And this chainsaw was dangled from a cord and it would go in between the power lines and the edges of the trees, and it would trim the edge. And the pilot would just go all along the edge doing that. And I thought to myself, I hope they have the power off in case he goofs, right? Because if you goof that up, that's kind of bad, don't you think? If you just nick one of those power lines, that's really bad. Did anyone see this video? A couple people saw this video. Okay, I'm not the only one that saw this. So we all got sucked into this thing, right? And, uh, and I was fascinated by it. I thought it was extremely interesting, and I ended up watching it several times. I'm, I'm like, how is he even doing this? Well, I, I was thinking about that again. You know, you look at this passage here, and it talks about the Lord just taking a sickle and just cutting down the forces of evil. Right? It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. That's the imagery we're given here of the Lord just, just taking a sickle and just cutting cutting evil down or cutting these armies down like he's using this great big sickle and the evil that prevails among the nations it's prevalent it's all over the place it's common it's plentiful but what you have in this portion of scripture is the lord promising that there is coming a day where he will deal with all of it he's going to deal with all of it now i'm sure that there is a form of injustice in this world right now that troubles your heart. Because there are forms of injustice in this world right now that deeply trouble my heart. And there's probably some things that if each of us took the time to share, we would all reveal some of the things that are things that we feel passionate about. We would say, all right, this is something that I hope we 
can address one day, or this is something I hope we would address now, or this is something that I'm, I'm desperately waiting for the Lord to intervene on and do something about. There are injustices in this world that trouble us. Um, I was talking to somebody just yesterday who was talking about the church being persecuted in various places in the world and encouraging believers to pray for the persecuted church. And I'm sure that there are forms of oppression and persecution that in your prayer time you ask the Lord to deal with or to handle or injustices that you ask Him to make right. Well, the good news is that the day is coming when all of that's going to be addressed. All of those issues are going to be handled. Evil is going to be cut down. That's what Joel's describing here. We live in a time right now where the Lord's saying, patience, be patient, my child. Be patient. Act if you can. You know, if there's something you can do, act as His representative. But understand that the big solution is coming at the perfect moment. By the way, why is the Lord being patient right now? Why is He putting up with the garbage that humanity throws at Him constantly or the ways in which we, we treat each other poorly? Why is He being patient right now? You know what He's doing? He's waiting for those who are going to trust in Him to trust in Him. He's giving us that opportunity. We live in that special time of God's patience, but then that time comes to an end. And Joel's describing when that time comes to the end where the Lord says, all right, today is the day. And he takes the sickle and he cuts evil down and the time of patience is over. And those who repented, those who trusted in Christ, experienced the joy of eternity with Christ and those who persisted in their rejection deal with the effects of the day of the Lord coming. Because the Scripture says here, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of of decision. The day of the Lord is near. The day is coming. Each second that marches on, we march just one second closer to that day. And then the day comes and the Lord takes that sickle and He cuts evil down. But there's one other thing that Joel brings up in this portion of Scripture that I want us to finish with this morning. And I want us to meditate as a comforting piece of information that this Scripture uh, brings out to us, and that's this. The people of God find refuge. It's a beautiful thing that the Scripture brings up. It tells us in verse 16, it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Just uh, chatting with... Danielle, just before the, the service began, we were chatting about sirens and things that we hear here at the church building with regularity. And I've mentioned this from time to time here as I'm working in my office. My office is right there. And so it faces the road. And I frequently, with a hospital directly across the street, what do you think I hear multiple times every day? I hear sirens, right? People rushing to the hospital. A siren means different things to different people. A siren's loud. It gets your attention, doesn't it? Siren will get your attention, but it means different things to different people. Meaning, if you just committed a crime and you heard a siren, that siren is not something you want to hear in that moment, right? It sparks fear. It sparks trepidation. It sparks the, the concern that you're about to be caught because of the thing that you did. If you hear that siren in connection with a crime. But if you just wrecked your car... And you feel stuck in that car and you can't get out, 
and you hear a siren, that's the sound of relief, isn't it? That's the sound of help. That's the sound that help is on the way, and you're grateful to hear that loud siren. So it means different things to different people, even though it's the same sound either way. It's either a sound of dread, or it's a sound of delight. And in Joel 3, verse 16, it tells us this. Think about this for a moment. It says, it tells us that the Lord roars from Zion. He roars from Zion. How is Jesus described in Scripture? There's a lot of ways we could answer that question, but one of the things he's described is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here you see the people of Judah dealing with all sorts of adversity and all sorts of pain, and here we're told that the Lord roars from Zion. Do you ever find yourself in a context where, have you ever been up close and personal with, with a lion's roar? Do you ever see that? There's a, a zoo up in northeast Pennsylvania that we took our children to uh, when they were very little, um, and in fact, uh, let's see, Hannah was probably two or three, Jay was a baby, and the other ones weren't born yet. And I remember we walked by the lion's area, and I, I, can't, I think I told you this, Jay, I don't remember if I did or not, but that lion wanted to eat you, and like you, like I, I, I brought you by, and you were, you were just like a cheesesteak to him, or you know, you're all wrapped up. I mean, it was creepy how that thing came up to the, to the edges there and was following our little baby Jay in a stroller, and that lion is just looking at him and just saying like, if not for this fence, that right there, appetizer. It's like, oh my word, this is freaky. And all day long, when you would hear that lion roar, I mean, that, that travels, right? That sound travels. That roar travels. And here we're told that the Lord roars from Zion. We're also told that the sound of His voice causes the heavens and the earth to quake. Causes the heavens and the earth to quake. So for those who reject Him, for those who fight against Him, that's a sound that sparks fear. For those who rejoice in His presence and protection, that's the sound of victory being secured. So for the nations that set themselves against the Lord, they hear that roar and that's the sound of their defeat. But for those who are aligned with the Lord, that's the sound of joy. That's the sound of victory being secured. If you know Jesus Christ, you are on the right side of that roar. If you know Jesus Christ, you're on the right side of that roar. If you know Christ, you have found the refuge that you need. And that's what the Scripture is talking about. It says, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Let me mention this as we finish up today. I, I've, I've shared this sometime in the past, but I want to share it again. Because the Scripture here is talking about the fact that the Lord is a refuge. Have you ever come across a time where you were just seeking refuge? Whatever context of life you were in, you know, the fall season is just starting here. It's getting a little bit colder. That means it, before you know it, we'll be dealing with snow and things like that. Uh, one of the most terrifying moments that my wife and I ever experienced was with my sister, and we were driving when we were in college, and we were trying to get back to this area after visiting family in northeast Pennsylvania, and we got caught in a terrible blizzard. And the snow would not stop, and we were stuck on the turnpike for a long period of time. We would drive for a little bit. It was freezing cold out, too. We'd drive for a little bit. The car would get stuck. I would get out, and I would push, 
and then we would drive for a little bit more, and then we'd get stuck for hours and hours and hours. We were stuck. Then we caravaned with another group of people who were also stuck. So there were four or five cars that we all banded together. Literally, people, we felt like it was for survival. We banded together with a whole bunch of strangers that we didn't know, and and just as one car would get stuck, we'd all get out of our cars, push that one out. As another car gets stuck, we all get out of our cars, push that one out. We banded together until we could get to different exits because we had also heard on the radio that we had till 9 o'clock to get off the roads because no car was allowed to drive after 9 o'clock. They were closing the roads. It was so bad. They wanted cars off the roads. And if you were still driving, you needed to pull over to the side and just deal with it another day. So our goal was to get off the road. And I remember by the time we got back to our dorms, by the time we got back to campus, I was so freezing cold, and I was so exhausted. I didn't even have, like, gloves and, like, a hat with me. I was not prepared for uh, getting stuck in that, in that weather. Although I will say this, one of the guys in the caravan, uh, a Steelers fan, in fact, shared a hat with this Eagles fan. He's like, here, I have a hat for you. So I had to wear a Steelers hat. Uh, and I was so grateful for that, the refuge of the Steelers hat, you know. I was like, all right, I put it on, covered my ears, helped me survive. So I owe a debt of gratitude to the people of, uh, uh, you know, Steelers country. So the western side of the state, you know, we're, we're cool with you. Um, but I'll, I, I'll tell you what, I remember when I got back to my dorm, when we finally made it back. And I laid down on my bed, and I was the only one in that dorm because other people were smart and didn't try and get back to the dorm. They just stayed home. They didn't try and drive in that weather. And I was in my dorm. My wife was in her dorm. My sister was in her dorm. And I just remember being in my dorm by myself there. I had never been so grateful for a warm building and a warm bed. I remember just being so relieved because I had just spent hours and hours and hours pushing a car in the midst of a, a blizzard freezing and feeling all my survival instincts kick in and just feeling the relief of refuge. So I love how the last verse of what we're looking at today ends because it again reminds us that the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So in the deepest sense, Jesus Christ is our ultimate refuge from sin from evil, and from abandonment. We find our hope, we find our sense of safety, we find our eternal home in Christ. No one and nothing else in this world can provide us the kind of refuge that our Lord can provide us. His victory over sin, His victory over Satan, His victory over death is guaranteed for those who trust in Him. There is no adversity that His children will face, that He cannot defeat. And again, this portion of Scripture reminds us that the Lord roars from Zion. And if you know Christ, you're on the right side of that roar. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about the things that You reveal to us through the prophet Joel and through the things that You impressed upon his heart to write down. Lord, it's fascinating to think about the ways in which you secure victory in the midst of adversity. And here we see the nations of the world aligned against you, and even all the nations of the world aligned against you. 
does not present enough strength to defeat you or your people. So Lord, we're grateful to be able to see this in a big way, but we also know this truth applies in individual ways and smaller ways. This is a victory that you secure for your church. This is a victory you secure for your people just in general, and we're grateful for that. Lord, we're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to walk with you day in and day out. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you in the midst of all circumstances. We're grateful that as that roar goes first, that as we know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that that can be a sound of ultimate victory being secured, not a sound of defeat, not a sound of dread, but a sound of joy knowing that you're righting wrongs, you're defeating evil, that sin and evil are ultimately cut down, and that your righteousness will reign forever. Lord, that's what you promised to us in your word, and we're grateful for the fact that when you promise things, you always deliver. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders to us today. We know, Lord, that this is from a portion of Scripture that for some of us this is probably the very first time we've ever sat down to really take a look at it in depth. But we pray that you'd remind us of these things and that you'd permeate our our hearts and our minds with these truths so that we would live them out in every context that you place us in. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.